Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Geld, the host of the documentary Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. It is well known that early diagnosis is the key to better outcomes. The leading causes of death and illness in the U.S., diabetes, cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, and diabetic blindness often have something preventable and often reversible in common, insulin resistance. Elevated insulin or hyperinsulinemia is often overlooked and not tested for. Studies show blood insulin can be elevated for more than 20 years before blood sugar rises. Not only is elevated insulin linked to many chronic disease killers and significant weight gain, it can also negatively alter male and female hormones, causing hair loss in females and low testosterone in males. Today's guest, BYU professor, Dr. Ben Fickman, PhD, is passionate about this topic. His new book, Why We Get Sick, explains groundbreaking evidence linking major chronic diseases to a common root cause, insulin resistance. In addition to his book, Dr. Bickman has published numerous scientific articles Welcome, Dr. Bickman. Hey, Carrie, thank you so much. What a great introduction. I'm thrilled to be able to speak with you about this stuff. Everything metabolic. Well, I really appreciate it. So let's start from the basics. What is insulin? But before I even ask you what insulin is, insulin is the only hormone in the body that actually lowers blood sugar. But we have numerous hormones in the body that raise blood sugar, such as epinephrine, cortisol, growth hormone, uh, and glucagon. Why do we only have one hormone that lowers blood sugar? What's the, what's the, why do you think that that is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, you're really hitting a lot of nails right on the head here. So yeah, insulin is so effective at lowering blood glucose levels that you, you could say that it takes a handful, a little army of other hormones in order to combat what insulin's trying to do. And, and mind you, as we talk about the effects on blood sugar, that is just one of insulin's, you know, one of the thousands of, of cellular events that insulin's going to trigger when it comes to a cell. So nevertheless, insulin is very potently acting. One of its actions is to lower blood glucose. And like I said, it does it so well that it, it requires several other hormones to combat it. Now, I think the reason it takes so many others to increase blood glucose, whereas insulin is the only one that reduces blood glucose, it's because there are non-hormonal methods of lowering blood glucose. For example, you can just contract muscles. Uh, and, and that's why you have this, this, you have an insulin independent ability of the muscles to pull in glucose, even when insulin may be at, at very basal uh, kind of fasting, or you dare I say exercising levels. So this effect of just moving muscles, a muscle contract, it is able to elicit that same 
um, action of pulling in glucose, even when insulin is not elevated. So, so you are absolutely correct in saying insulin is the only hormone that will lower blood sugar, but there are non-hormonal factors like muscle contraction, for example, that will do the same. And, uh, and, and, that is, and that's important because muscle represents the main consumer of glucose. When someone eats a meal, 80% of all that blood sugar is going to go into the muscle. So it represents an enormous glucose sink, if you will, a drain to pull in all that glucose. So if you can have a way to pull in glucose at the muscle, the main consumer anyway, that doesn't rely on insulin, namely just muscle contraction, then you, you, you kind of have a helper for insulin. And then other than that, I would just add that most of the body's cells, like our neurons, our immune cells, our, our liver cells, they don't need insulin to pull in glucose. They can just pull in glucose anytime it starts to go up. So again, just to make it clear, everything you said was exactly right. Insulin is the only single hormone that can do it, but there are other factors that sort of work in concert with insulin all of which creates a pretty powerful signal to be lowering blood glucose. And so you kind of need a little bit of an army, like exactly the hormones you just mentioned, to increase blood glucose, to fight it off, to balance it. Where is insulin made in the body? And what are some of the other functions besides lowering glucose? Yeah, yeah. So insulin is made in a little set of cells in the pancreas. And this is, we all are making insulin unless we're a type 1 diabetic. In a type 1 diabetic, that is when the person has an autoimmune disease and they've just destroyed those, those beta cells. That's what they're called, these insulin-producing cells. But for the rest of us, we're making insulin all the time. And insulin will have different effects at every cell of the body. But that matters because every cell in the body has insulin receptors. Every single cell, skin cells, uh, kidney cells, muscles, bone, joints, you name it. Every cell has insulin receptors, and, and it will induce different effects at different cells. Like, for example, but, but in fact, let me just sort of, I'll say it as a theme. The theme of insulin is to pull in nutrients and, and store them or make new things from them. That's why we say that insulin is anabolic, because it can stimulate the cell to pull in building blocks and, and then make something from it. So it's, it's absolutely essential an untreated, you know, if you don't have insulin, that is a death sentence. And, and, and so I wouldn't want anyone to hear me talk about insulin and think, oh, well, insulin is just a villain. No, it's not. Um, unfortunately, I mean, it's necessary. Unfortunately, in our environment, it's become a villain unwittingly just because we, we almost we push it to become a villain because of how we eat. It gets confusing the different terms, hyperinsulinemia insulin resistance, pre-diabetes. What's the difference or are they all the same different, sta different stages? Yeah, yeah. So pre-diabetes is generally synonymous with insulin resistance. Uh, so those are two terms we can just lump together right um, from, the, from the gate here. But, the, but the, you distinguishing in a hyperinsulinemia is extremely relevant because that's an often overlooked aspect of insulin resistance. Technically, they're not the same thing. Hyperinsulinemia is just elevated insulin levels in the blood. Insulin resistance is a state where insulin isn't doing everything that it used to do at all of the cells in the body. Some cells, insulin still works fine. Some cells, it does not. 
that is insulin resistance, but the two occur together. They're two sides of the same kind of bad metabolic coin. And, and so hyperinsulinemia in any state of actual insulin resistance, you always get the two together. Insulin isn't working quite the same way at all the body cells and insulin is elevated. Those two have to come together. Um, there's no, if you pull away the hyperinsulinemia, then the insulin resistance gets resolved. When we talk about insulin resistance, if you could explain what it is, because it gets very confusing and the different stages where it, it, it's insulin resistance of the liver, then insulin resistance of the yeah. muscle, and then insulin resistance of the fat tissue. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, in other words, how does insulin resistance uh, progress? I, um, this is a little bit of speculation. So I'd want anyone to know that I'm speaking with a fair degree of authority, but there's some speculation here nonetheless. I believe that the first cell that becomes insulin resistant is the fat cells. And then as the fat cells, and I'll elaborate more, um, the fat, as the fat cells become insulin resistant, they start to spread that insulin resistance sort of downstream, if you will, like to the liver and to the muscle and to the brain uh, and throughout the body. But, but, but the fat cell is basically the first domino to fall and then the rest just start tumbling afterwards. And specifically, when someone is gaining fat, it can happen through two different mechanisms. It can happen. So like if, if, you, if you see a friend and you haven't seen them in a year, you see them again and they, they've gained 20 pounds of, of just pure fat, you can tell. Fat growth on a person occurs through two ways and often kind of a mix, but generally it's two mechanisms. One, that the fat cells themselves get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's called hypertrophic Fat, uh, fat growth uh, or hypertrophy of the fat cells. So the individual fat cell number hasn't changed, but each fat cell has gotten bigger. Then the other way of fat tissue growing or someone getting fatter is that the fat cells undergo what's called hyperplasia. In other words, we start making new fat cells. And the fat cells never become particularly big on their own. They maintain a fairly modest size, but we just have so many more of them. That is actually a healthier way to get fat. So hyperplastic fat growth or making new fat cells, the fat tissue stays very insulin sensitive and thus it can keep growing. We can keep getting more and more fat cells. We have more and more place to store energy, to store fat, to pull in glucose and make it, turn it into fat. All, that's all happening at these fat cells. In contrast, when fat cells are only growing through hypertrophy, they, they get too big. And they basically reach a maximum size, which can be about four or five times bigger than the normal fat cell, and they cannot get any bigger. And so because insulin is telling a fat cell to grow, the fat cell becomes insulin resistant. It's almost like self-preservation. You can almost see some kind of genius behind it from the level of the fat cell. It's thinking, if I don't become insulin resistant, I'm, I'm basically going to explode. And that's not literally what would happen, but it would reach maximum dimension. It, it has already reached maximum dimension. It cannot get any bigger. And so it becomes insulin resistant. And it starts doing two things to try to solve the problem. It starts leaking free fatty acids into the blood because insulin can't tell it to stop doing that. Insulin normally will inhibit that process, what we call lipolysis or the breakdown of fat. Insulin normally inhibits lipolysis, but the fat cell has become resistant to that effect, and thus it starts leaking its fat. And in an effort to increase blood flow 
it starts to, which, which is compromised to the fat cell because it's so big, it actually starts releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines. In fact, even one very relevant to diabetic retinopathy, which is vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, that's very much implicated in retinopathy. So we have the fat cell leaking these pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines and leaking these fatty acids. And those two things right there are the, really the two pillars of the formula that ends up creating insulin resistance. So the insulin resistant fat cell, to kind of bring it full circle, starts leaking these signals that make other cells insulin resistant, like the liver and the muscle and the brain and, and the gonads, you know, and the, the, uh, to potentially exacerbate infertility. So the problem just starts spreading throughout the body. Is there certain foods or fats that are predetermined what type of, whether the fat cells grow or they multiply? So, or is it just more of a genetic thing? Uh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually believe it's a mix um, where uh, the fact that we are getting more and more of these insulin resistant problems, we do see, I mean, I think does suggest that there is an environmental component. In other words, a dietary component. And there's certainly evidence to support that. In fact, I'll just mention that now. We know for a fact, insulin will induce hypertrophy of fat cells. You can see that in, in diabetics that are insulin dependent, type one or type two, but let me just add, I, I, and I'm not giving anyone a prescription, I'm not anyone's doctor, but I think a type two diabetic should never be on insulin therapy, but that's, that's an aside. But nevertheless, if someone is giving themselves insulin injections, we tell them to rotate their injection sites because if they continue to give the insulin in one spot, those fat cells will grow substantially. You have what's called the lipohypertrophy, all because of that insulin stimulating the growth of the fat cell through hypertrophy. And then second, we also have evidence that the, a metabolite of the omega-6 fatty acid, the main omega-6 fatty acid, it also induces a fat cell to grow through hypertrophy. And the, this is, unfortunately, that's relevant because the most common fat we eat as humans nowadays is are, are fake fats. In fact, the two most common are soybean oil and, and margarine. And both of those are based on um, refined, or we could call industrial seed oils, which involve a great degree of technology in order to get oils from something like a soybean or a canola seed or, or corn uh, seeds. Those seed oils are very high in, in, a, in, a, in an omega-6 fatty acid called linoleic acid. And when linoleic acid is metabolized, it turns into a molecule that will also uh, force the fat cell to grow through hypertrophy rather than hyperplasia. And then one other comment about genetics, there's clearly a genetic component because we see these uh, disparities across ethnicities. So for example, I did my, my postdoctoral fellowship in, in Singapore, this beautiful little tropical island down on the equator. Um, that is a mix of various ethnicities, but it is predominantly Chinese ethnicity. Now, because it was an English colony, it's very sort of British in a way, but nevertheless, the predominant ethnicity is Chinese. And Singapore, as a, as a government, as a country, was interested in why Chinese ethnicity, like a Chinese man, is getting metabolic complications so early in the process of weight gain. So basically, you could take someone of kind of Northern European descent, like me or you, and then have like, so if I start to gain fat at the same rate 
that a Chinese guy, say from Singapore, one of my buddies from Singapore, if he starts to gain fat, we both are getting fatter, fatter, fatter. He starts to suffer from that much, much sooner than me. And so I like to joke that if you want to be obese, you want to be kind of European Caucasian because European Caucasians can tend to get fatter than other ethnicities, and as a, certainly as opposed to a Chinese ethnicity where it's relatively more hypertrophy of fat cells. And we see this also in um, Asian uh, uh, Indians and the Indian subcontinent where they are very, very predisposed to, to uh, hypertrophy of fat cells and very sensitive to fat gain. But they also eat a lot of seed oils in their diet too. So that's just kind of compounding the problem potentially. So it's a mix, environment, absolutely, and genetics. They kind of have that skinny fat. I see a lot of yes from India and they're not that heavy, but they get terrible diabetes and terrible vascular disease. That's exactly right. In fact, there are even studies. I was just presenting um, a lecture, uh, recording actually a lecture um, because of uh, constraints at universities to meet with students. We can't have big classrooms anymore. I was recording a lecture about reproductive disorders and highlighting to my students this phenomenon in women with polycystic ovarian syndrome where even in lean women, lean women that have PCOS, if you actually measure the insulin resistance at their fat cells, they are significantly more insulin resistant than a, a, a woman with similar leanness, but who doesn't have PCOS. So even there, in a woman who doesn't apparently have too much fat cell or too much fat tissue, there's still detectable insulin resistance at the fat cells. Yeah, if you talk about PCOS and, and females, they get the side effects from insulin. They start losing their hair, their bones get yes. bigger. Uh, so it, that's, a very, that's a very obvious sign when somebody has PCOS. And as far as treatment of PCOS and diet, uh, what would you recommend? Yeah, yeah. So I am fascinated with um, PCOS. Me too. Um, because I, I often think it's actually, we, um, I think conventional medicine uh, doesn't look at it correctly. And I say that um, with a certain degree of experience, just because I have a friend who's here in Utah Valley, who is a reproductive specialist, uh, an MD, and, and he has sort of seen the light, so to speak. And when he talks about PCOS with his patients, he refers to it as metabolic infertility. And I, I just thought that that's really just really getting it, getting it right. Basically, the high levels of insulin is preventing her ovaries from converting testosterone into estrogens. And so, and that's a necessary process. All, all estrogens in men and women came from testosterone. It was once testosterone, and then it gets converted into the estrogens. And women just have more of that enzyme to convert the testosterone into estrogens. So a woman naturally has relatively more estrogen than a man does. And that is essential for fertility, of course, for, for the normal uh, menstrual cycle. But basically by blocking the conversion into estrogens, she has too many androgens. And so then she starts to have the more coarse body hair like men do. She starts to have male pattern baldness, which is androgen dependent, um, high levels of androgens. And, and so she, and not to mention, of course, the, the lack of, of ovulating uh, or of normal menstrual cycle. So because it is so dependent on insulin, and high levels of insulin. If you can lower the insulin, you really start addressing the problem at its root cause. And that is why almost every woman with PCOS, the first drug they will put her on is metformin, the, the most common insulin sensitizing drug in, in the world. 
the most commonly used drug, but it's also why they respond so favorably to lifestyle interventions that lower insulin. And this has been published in, in kind of small pilot studies from um, Dr. Eric Westman at Duke, where if you put these ladies on an intervention to lower their insulin, then the disease starts to improve dramatically. Those are great people to study insulin resistance because they have it so severely. So let's get back to it and let's talk about uh, the liver. What happens when the liver becomes insulin resistant? Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating event. Um, and I actually use the liver as an example in my class to show that even within one cell or one tissue type, insulin resistance can manifest in, in sort of this unexpected way. So at the level of the, uh, at the liver, you have this, what's called a selective insulin resistance. Uh, and basically, when insulin comes, just as a bit of a primer here, uh, as a groundwork, when insulin comes to the liver cells, it will stimulate, well, a variety of things. It will tell the liver to store glucose that, it's, that is pulling in as glycogen, so to store glycogen, or store glucose as glycogen, and, uh, and to store excess um, fats and, and glucose as fat. So it activates glycogenesis, the formation of glycogen, the storage form of glucose, and it activates lipogenesis, the creation of fat. And this can be stored, fat stored in the liver and fat released as, as VLDL and LDL, well, VLDL. So released as like what we think of as cholesterol or these lipoproteins to be carried around the body. What, in, what happens with liver insulin resistance is that the glycogenesis is compromised. In other words, the insulin-resistant liver is no longer storing glucose, it is now releasing it. And it still is making fat perfectly fine. So lipogenesis is uncompromised. And so the insulin-resistant liver is now compounding the whole body problem by releasing, by increasing glucose and increasing lipids in the blood. That's, that's the sort of per, part of the perfect storm of, of insulin resistance once the liver you know, falls, so to speak, once it starts to suffer. So we wind up getting a fatty liver and then the liver doesn't do its job the way it should be and that causes the insulin to go up. Yeah, yeah. So as, as the liver continues to become insulin resistant, it certainly will start becoming this situation of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And as it is continuing to push up the glucose, because it's not storing glucose, it's releasing it even when it shouldn't, because insulin is trying to tell it to store the glucose and the liver just doesn't get the signal anymore. That just makes, that pushes up the insulin even higher. And, and then you have a vicious cycle of, of pushing up the glucose, pushing up the insulin, but insulin not working well. So glucose keeps going up, pushing up the insulin. And, and it just goes in a cycle. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Now let's turn our attention to the muscles when the muscles get yeah. insulin resistance because 80% of the 80% of the glucose and the insulin should be doing its job at the muscles, at the level of the muscles. What happens when the muscles become resistant? Yeah, so typically when the muscle falls, so to speak, and when it becomes insulin resistant, the person is full on type two diabetic. At that point, you just can't keep glucose in check anymore. And you alluded to this phenomenon in your introduction, but it's so important that I'm just gonna repeat it. Um, but everyone know Carrie said it first, so I'm just repeating Carrie. <laughs> so basically 
the, the insulin resistant state is hyperinsulinemia, but normal glucose. And that's why it's so often undetected because we only look at the glucose. We are obsessed with glucose um, erroneously, by, but that obsession forced, it causes us to miss the problem. We detect it far later, but later happens basically when the liver and especially the muscle becomes insulin resistant. Now we can't control glucose as well. We keep raising our insulin higher and higher and higher, but it can't work. It's losing the war. And now glucose starts to climb because we just can't dump it into the muscle as well as we could before. And now we diagnose the problem as type two diabetic. And, and, and I, hope, I hope your listeners can appreciate the tragedy there by looking at glucose as the main marker of these kind of metabolic problems. We detect the problem far later than we could. We could have detected it decades before when the insulin is climbing rather than just the glucose. And so we need to shift the paradigm to look more at insulin as the primary marker and not glucose when it comes to metabolic health. I think Jason Fung, who is in, our, is in our film, in our documentary, said it best, we're really only concerned about glucose toxicity and we forget about insulin toxicity. Why do you think that is in, in today's medicine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, that, that's, I, I have such admire, admiration for Jason Fung. I'm thrilled you, you involved him. I think he's just wonderful. Yeah, so I, I think the, the glucose obsession or this glucose-centric paradigm, I think is a result of two, two situations or, or two reasons. The first one being historical and the second one being scientific. With historical, that's because um, traditionally, when we saw someone going through diabetes, even from ancient Egypt and ancient India, these early physicians and the earliest records we have of this, the main symptom was the polyuria, or in other words, the excessive urine production. And that is where the term diabetes comes from. The actual term diabetes comes from this phenomenon of someone urinating a lot. And the urination is a result of high glucose levels. And so those early, very curious, and dare I say, you know, courageously foolish physicians, they would taste the urine or they, would, and they, or they would note that there were tons of flies or dogs coming and licking up the urine. There was something in the urine that was attracting, that gave it a different taste and attracting animals and insects to it. And that was, of course, was the glucose. So the polyuria, the main symptom of diabetes, is a direct result of the high, the high glucose, the hyperglycemia. So that's one justification or one reason why we can sort of understand the glucose obsession. And then the second one is because of scientific convenience. It's just really easy to measure glucose. We've been able to measure glucose for well over 100 years. This is, this is a molecule that because it's a nutrient, it can be oxidized and we can measure it on little glucose strips at the convenience of our own home. That is in stark contrast to insulin, which you have to isolate the plasma and then you have to take it to a lab and then measure the insulin because it's a hormone. It's not a nutrient like, like glucose is. But as, as, as much as we can understand the historical obsession for, for, uh, for glucose because of both history and science, I submit that it's becoming less and less forgivable to continue to focus on the glucose because it is just so easy nowadays to get insulin measured at every single blood test. If someone, if we're taking a blood tube from a, from a clinical visit and we're sending it to the lab to get our, our lipids measured, 
boy, you can get the gluc you can get the insulin as well. And so more and more, I, I think it, like I said, it's increasingly less forgivable to continue to overlook insulin because the, the convenience is, is we've arrived. It's pretty easy to do. We can't do it in our own homes yet, but we can certainly do it at every clinical visit. By looking at the retinal blood vessels through uh, photography now, through retinal imaging, we could see at 10 microns, 10 to 15 microns, and we could see the capillaries. Now we could see these little microaneurysms, and we know that when we see that, it's correlated with insulin resistance. And we did a study, and we published it in diabetes, in diabetes to show that it, it correlated with either fasting insulin or two-hour insulin assays. So if you could talk about what you feel the best labs to diagnose uh, insulin resistance or too much insulin in the body where it starts negatively affecting the body, what are your favorites? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I would say, uh, first of all, I think it's wonderful that you're thinking outside the box and, and looking for some of these more metabolic origins here of a problem. I really admire that. I will also note that any type 2 diabetics that are listening to this that are on insulin therapy, there are human studies to show that when a type 2 diabetic goes on insulin therapy, their glucose levels go to normal, and yet they accelerate the retinopathy. So that's just as much as we've focused, even in the case of eye health on the glucose, you can't ignore the relevance of insulin there for a variety of reasons, which, which are almost you know, kind of too myriad to get into at the moment. Yeah, so how could you, what, are, what is sort of the gospel according to Ben ways of measuring insulin or insulin resistance? I would say the first and the easiest is just measuring insulin, just getting a fasting insulin number. And then that alone has some good value. Um, some diagnostic value. And my personal cutoff is that insulin should be at six microunits per mil of blood or lower, six or below. And then once you have that fasting insulin, you can also combine it with your fasting glucose in a very good number called the HOMA score, H-O-M-A. And anyone can look this up. HOMA is just an acronym for the homeostatic model assessment. You basically take your fasting insulin, multiply by fasting glucose, and then you divide it by 405, 405, and you want that number to be less than 1.5. If that formula gives you a number of less than 1.5, then that's a good indicator that you're insulin sensitive. And then another one, in fact, maybe I should have started with this one. It's unexpected, but it's very, very tightly correlated, is the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So if someone just looks at an old blood test, they will most certainly have gotten this blood lipid panel. And that will have given them their total cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol, their HDL cholesterol, and their triglycerides. Those are almost always measured. Someone can just take that triglyceride number, divide it by the HDL number, and once again, you want that to be around one. You know, no higher than 1.5, and you're, that's a good indicator that you're insulin sensitive. Now, Carrie, you'd mentioned this dynamic insulin test, which is someone comes in, take their blood test, including an insulin measurement, and then you have them drink um, a, a, a solution of glucose, an oral glucose tolerance test. That is probably the best way to do it, um, frankly. Uh, but it's also, of course, the most invasive where the person has to come in and stick around at the clinic for two or so hours and, so, and have multiple blood tests. But uh, one way of looking at that, although you didn't do it this way, but I'll just mention one I'm familiar with, is, is, a, is a method from Japanese called the Hayashi test. But basically, 
when you measure insulin at time point zero, <clears throat> and if you can measure it at 30 minutes and 60 minutes, let alone anything after that, you want the 30 minute time point to be the highest, to be the peak. If the 60 minute is higher than the 30 minute, then that's a sign of insulin resistance. If the 30 minutes higher than the 60, then that's a good sign that you're insulin sensitive. So it kind of follows a, a kind of a dynamic pattern that if it's the highest point at 30 minutes, then you're all right. Dr. Ron Rosedale, who kind of started this whole, whole insulin resistance and talking about insulins probably 20, 30 years ago, he looked at centenarians and he found that people that live the longest had the most, was the most insulin sensitive and the least insulin resistant. Can you comment on that? Yeah, yeah. So that's, there are studies that show, in fact, I think the title that I'm thinking of is it's something like um, famili familial longevity is marked by insulin sensitivity or something like that, or insulin sensitivity as a common trait among familial longevity. So basically the longest lived people as you see it happening within families, siblings, generational among parents to child, these people that live very long, arguably the strongest um, connection or connecting variable across them all is that they are insulin sensitive. This really uh, builds on a tremendous depth of research that has existed for years in, in other species. So even from things as simple as fruit flies to mice, uh, in those models where we can you know, fully measure from every day of life, from the day they're born to the day they die. If you can reduce insulin signaling in that body, they will, it will live longer. The fruit fly will live longer. The, the, the mouse will live longer. And so we can speculate that the same thing is part of what's responsible for human longevity. Although, of course, we aren't tracking humans from the day they live to the day they die. We're complicated, and that's impossible, really. But nevertheless, Insulin is a powerful activator of these anabolic signals in every cell in the body. And one of those anabolic signals is, is a protein called mTOR. And mTOR is thought to be one of the main signals that will force a cell to basically get old. It prevents a cell from activating a process called autophagy, which is kind of a process whereby the cell stays young, if you will. It starts to, as various parts of the cell starts to get old, and, and less useful, the cell will recycle it and basically make new pieces of itself. And so the cell, like I said, kind of stays young, if you will. And then by extension, the whole body will, if you will, be staying young. And, and, and again, insulin stops that process powerfully. Insulin inhibits autophagy uh, very, very well. And so Insofar as we think that autophagy is one of the main drivers of longevity, aging well, then, then whatever is inhibiting autophagy is something to be careful with. And like I said, insulin does that exquisitely well, which is a problem because we've been told that we should eat diets that are high in carbohydrates and we should eat them six times a day, you know, six small little meals a day, again, focused on carbohydrate. And that is a perfect way to make sure that insulin is elevated every moment of the day. In other words, it's perfectly awful. Right, and we're gonna get into that. Uh, Dr. Uh, Joseph Kraft and Kathleen Croft, yeah. uh, you're probably familiar with both, I'm sure. They two-hour insulin assay, they felt anything over 40 was abnormal. Do you feel that may be too low or do you think that's about right? No, no, in fact, that, that's, that's brilliant. I think Catherine is, I just really credit her for helping jo Dr. Kraft's data 
stay alive, basically, as he's passed the torch. Um, I think she's the one carrying it nowadays. Yeah. So that two-hour indicator is another very, very strong one that I think is very, very diagnostic. And if anyone can do it, do it. This may be a little esoteric, but the glucagon insulin ratio, because doctors typically aren't going to measure glucagon. And, but if you explain what glucagon is and why maybe someday that ratio, we may be able to measure that in the clinic. Yeah. Yeah. So I was interested in glucagon uh, a number of years ago when I was first getting familiar with the low carb community, you know, and I don't mean like scientists, but I mean kind of just the public, the public's interest in low carb diets. I saw a lot of people fearing protein. And I thought I was struck by that. And I thought that that seemed a little inappropriate to just be obsessing on fat, on dietary fat without the protein. Um, and I very much appreciate dietary fat, um, largely just because of its minimal or null effect on insulin. But, but we'll get into that later. So glucagon is, is one of the insulin antagonists. So one of its main actions is to increase blood glucose. And so as someone is starting to reduce their carbohydrate intake, let's say, glucagon starts to play more and more of an important role in just making sure glucose stays normal, which it does. You know, we could, we could fast for days and our glucose is going to be perfectly normal. Largely, that is a result of glucagon. It's one of the key, along with cortisol, hormones to keep blood glucose at normal levels. But glucagon, in addition to, like insulin, it has more nuance. There's more aspects to its, to its being, to, it, to this molecule, than just regulating blood glucose. Glucagon stimulates lipolysis at fat cells. Glucagon stimulates ketogenesis at the liver. It, it drives the liver to make ketones as it's breaking down fat at a very high level. So uh, glucagon has, has other benefits that, that really kind of across the board counter what insulin's doing because insulin would want to inhibit all those processes and glucagon wants to stimulate them. And the relevance of this, you'd mentioned the insulin to glucagon ratio. I, I like that ratio, um, but, but as much as it pains me to say, I don't know that it will ever really have a clinical utility. I think it will only ever be kind of academic. It'll just be a bunch of us eggheads at, at universities um, who are curious about this. But in general, if we are measuring someone's insulin to glucagon ratio, we're basically getting an idea of the balance between anabolic and catabolic processes. Anabolic is a term I've already mentioned. That's when the cell is building things up, which is good, of course, but we can't have anabolism always. Otherwise, cells are always growing, and that just pushes us towards cancer. And then the counter to that is catabolic, which is the cell breaking things down. And that might seem bad, but it's not inherently. We need both of them. The balance of anabolic and catabolic is metabolism. It is the sum of all the an anabolic or anabolism and the catabolism reactions. That's metabolism. And the insulin to glucagon ratio just kind of gives us an idea of which variable is predominant. Are we more anabolic or are we more catabolic? And I'll just say, if someone wants to control their weight, let alone lose weight, they better have more time and catabolism. They need to be catabolic because that's breaking down the fat cells uh, in order to, of course, uh, which is happening if the person's losing weight. So anyway, to sum it up, the insulin to glucagon ratio, I think is more of an academic kind of curiosity. And, and the problem clinically is just that there are so many differences especially with glucagon uh, in, in the different kinds of tests. You can have 
really wide differences in sensitivity to measure glucagon. And so you'd have to be like using the exact same lab every time, same test to really know what your glucagon levels were. We have a mutual goal and that's to prevent people from getting sick and becoming diabetic and catching them early when they have high insulin to prevent them from becoming diabetic because they could have high insulin for over 20 years before their blood sugar goes up. So let's go through some of the diseases that elevated insulin causes or is at least correlated with and why it happens. So let's start with cancer. Uh, we know that if the insulin is high, it'll decrease uh, apoptosis and that insulin is a growth promoter. So talk about cancer and, and the correlation. Sure, there's many, many causes of cancer, but as yeah. far as the, being correlated with elevated insulin. Yeah, yeah. So in fact, we could focus on the, the, the single, the two most common cancers are breast and prostate cancers in women and men respectively. And they are both exquisitely connected to insulin resistance. You can take individuals with the cancer or without, and you can control for every variable, age, sex, body fatness, you know, height and weight. And the one variable that will continue to stay relevant is insulin resistance. And this could be because many uh, frequently in these, both of these cancers, both breast and prostate cancers, part of the mutation of the cancer cells is that they have significantly more insulin receptors. And there's one study that comes to my mind in particular where they pulled, uh, they had biopsies of normal breast tissue and biopsies of cancer um, breast tissue, the tumor breast tissue. And the tumor had seven times more insulin receptors than the normal breast tissue. And that would then, we could conclude, that tumor is seven times more responsive. It's seven times more sensitive to insulin telling it to grow. Because like you said, insulin tells cells to grow. If you've got seven times more insulin receptors on all these cells, boy, that's a cell that you know potentially is gonna have seven times more of a signal to, to grow. And part of that growth, so, so on one hand, we have uh, an insulin resistance, let alone you know as we're progressing towards type two diabetes, we have a high level of insulin stimulating the growth signal at these cancer cells. And then unfortunately we combine it with fuel. Often these are people that are eating lots of carbohydrates that's almost required for this disease for insulin resistance. And so they have high glucose flowing through the blood. And so that, and that matters because glucose is the only fuel a cancer cell can use. We have, to my knowledge, there is no exception in any human cancer, um, the human tumors, use glucose. In fact, they use it 200 times more than normal cells. They're 200 times hungrier for glucose. And so with insulin resistance, we have this perfect storm. We have the high insulin stimulating the growth, and we have the high glucose fueling the growth. It gives the cancer cell all the fuel it needs to grow as fast as insulin is telling it to grow. Talking about growth, I know you're also an expert in exercise physiology. I know bodybuilders sometimes shoot insulin to grow their muscles. Uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, I think it's moronic, but you're right. Um, insulin is anabolic. Um, but one thing that is so interesting, if you look over the history, I saw this little, I don't want to call it a documentary, but it was just, I, I guess there's no other word for it, on YouTube that compared the physiques um, across bodybuilders from you know Arnold and Lou Ferrigno until nowadays. And they were all, of course, massive 
but uh, you know, so, so muscled. But the big difference between, you know, 30 years ago bodybuilding to now, one of the differences is the rise of the use of insulin. Insulin is anabolic, but at the level of the muscle, a better way of looking at insulin is that it's anti-catabolic. It's not that insulin is necessarily going to force a muscle cell to grow like, like steroids do. I mean, if you start taking anabolic steroids, you are going to grow those muscles. Insulin isn't necessarily stimulating the growth. It's just acting to prevent the breakdown. And so it ends up kind of protecting the muscle. But to my, back to my point, historically, what we see, one of the differences is that the modern bodybuilders that are abusing all these hormones and drugs, they have a bubble belly. They have this very protruding stomach where the stomach is bulging out. Now, it's, it's under this beautiful layer this, of, of six-pack, but you can't deny the fact that there is something bigger in the bellies of the modern bodybuilders than there used to be you know, 30 years ago before they started abusing insulin. So part of the problem, well, with any of these hormones that are abused to stimulate muscle growth, <clears throat> you also get growth of other stuff. And uh, in the case of insulin, you're promoting the growth of fat cells, and that could be driving the, the, the visceral fat behind their stomach, their, their abdominal muscles. And so they end up getting this fatter belly, um, in addition to other um, stimulating growth of other things like the heart, et cetera, which makes it more lethal. But the use of insulin as an anabolic agent, I think, is, is stupid. Uh, that if someone is going to abuse drugs, then focus on the anabolic steroids, not that I'm telling anyone to do that, and leave the insulin behind. Leave that for the diabetics. You're not going to get the growth of your muscles that you want, probably, and you're going to get other consequences that you don't want, like probably pushing you more towards insulin resistance and diabetes. And all the things that we're going to talk about now, they get that metabolic belly, that, that big yep. abdominal obesity. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. 